Welcome to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM, the Superstation of Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotep. It is Sunday, August 21st, 2022, and we are live. Hope everybody's doing well today. Uh, this weekend, I was in Dayton, Ohio for the 16th annual African American Cultural Festival. Uh, so I just got back. Um, about an hour and a half ago, something like that. And um, those that follow me on social media know we posted about it on our social media, um, uh, on our Facebook fan page. I posted about it and shot some video there as well. So uh, the second day, uh, today was the second day. It rained out today. Um, But, um, you know, it was still a good event. Uh, On today's show, we have a very exciting show for you today. So, uh, I posted a story earlier in the week, and it deals with um, discrimination when it comes to home appraisals regarding African Americans. Um, black uh, black couples home appraised with a black owner at four hundred and seventy two thousand dollars, but with a white owner seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. So there was a big story from the New York Times that um, I posted earlier in the week and it got over 700 likes. Um, it got, it reached about, it reached about 46,000 people. This post that I did, this deals with um, another story of African homeowners who were to a home appraisal. Now, a deep rich history of redlining in this country, discrimination when it comes to uh, getting uh, insurance uh, for homes, uh, loans for homes as well, but also uh, a, a, a discrimination when it comes to appraisals. And this African-American couple, uh, their home was appraised at $472,000, $472,000, when the appraiser thought it was an African-American couple that owned the home. But when they thought it was a white couple that owned the home, it was appraised at $750,000. We're going to talk about this story, huge story from the New York Times from um, August 18th, from Thursday, August 18th, 2022. And the husband is a history professor at John Hopkins University and an expert on redlining and the legacy of white supremacy. So they mess with the wrong person here. They mess with the wrong person. We're going to talk about that story. Uh, then also, when I was on Roland Martin Unfiltered on fr- Friday, one of the stories we dealt with was um, dealing with the Department of Justice is uh, says that Florida Republicans specific, specifically targeted African-American voters with restrictions. The Department of Justice um, is suing the uh, is suing uh, a Florida. Uh, um, a recent filing from the Justice Department claims that Florida Republicans intentionally targeted African-American voters with restrictions, which will surely hamper turnout for the upcoming midterm elections. Uh, the Guardian.com had a big article uh, dealing with this. We spoke with Cliff Albright, uh, co-founder of uh, Black Voters Matters, and 
uh, we had a good conversation with him dealing with this case out of Florida. Okay. And remember that Florida was the uh, first state to have poll taxes um, in this in this country, even before it started in the state of Mississippi. So we're going to talk about that on today's show as well. Then coming out of um, New Orleans, out of uh, Louisiana, the news that there's, there's um, a story from. Uh, Forbes.com, as well as NOLA.com, which is a New Orleans uh, news publication, NOLA.com, that New Orleans Mayor uh, LaToya Cantrell is warning that Mardi Gras festivities may be canceled for 2023 due to a significant shortage in police officers in New Orleans due to a significant shortage of police officers. And there is a shortage in many departments across the country of police officers. Some have uh, attritioned out, some have, uh, it because, and due to COVID, uh, you know, some have attritioned out, uh, some have gone to other professions, etc. because we, we, we we have seen this a lot in, in various uh, first line emergency responders, whether they're the fire department, whether they're EMS, um, frontline personnel, whether they're, they're teachers. There's a shortage of teachers across the country as well. I was just watching the story on MSNBC um, uh, today uh, dealing with a shortage of teachers and uh, because of COVID-19, but also because of additional stress that's put on teachers when it comes to uh, navigating these ambiguous anti-critical race theory laws in various states, a lot of people are transitioning out of teaching, okay? So you have a shortage in various municipalities, various states of police officers, but also teachers and we're in the season when kids are going back to school or gearing up to go back to school after Labor Day. But there is a uh, shortage of police officers nationwide, and this is having wide-ranging ramifications. So Mayor uh, Latoya Cantrell of New Orleans is saying if they can't get that fixed, they're going to have to cancel um, uh, Mardi Gras festivals, uh, Mardi Gras festivities for 2023. Okay, so we'll discuss that story, and then. Um, August 20th, August, Saturday, August 20th was the, okay, we're coming up on a break. Saturday, August 20th was the 403rd anniversary of August 20th, 2019. Uh, and we'll talk about that as well. Also, we're going to be joined by a guest uh, at the bottom of the hour. We're going to be joined by Omari Osei from uh, the UNIA. Uh, Marcus Garvey's organization. They're going to talk about their international convention coming up. You listen to the After History Network show. I'm Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. Show right here on Antenna on the Superstation, the Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotel. It is Sunday, August 21st, 2022, and we are live. Hey, Giovanni, let me know if the audio, uh, how the audio sounds. I had to reboot the computer because it installed a new version of Skype when I, um, rebooted it to come on the air live okay so 
Uh, call in numbers 313-778-7600. 313-778-7600 is the call in number if you have a question or comment. All right, so we have a jam-packed show. Uh, as I was saying right before the break, uh, we're going to be joined by uh, Omari Osei of the uh, Universal Negro Improvement Association at the uh, bottom of the hour as well. Uh, the 64th Annual International Convention of the UNIA is coming up um, this week here in Detroit. So he's going to give us some information about that. All right. Okay. And uh, also Saturday, August 20th was the 400th year anniversary of third year anniversary of, of August 20th, 1619 in Jamestown, Virginia. Uh, well, actually it was Hampton, Virginia, not Jamestown, Hampton, Virginia, when that, um, um, English pirate ship called the White Lion comes into point comes into uh, Virginia at Point Comfort, and they exchange twenty and odd Africans for uh, food and water. Okay, so we'll talk a little bit about that history, and uh, we'll do a recap of my uh, online uh, course that I teach normally on the weekend, normally on Saturdays. Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Maafa. Understanding the transatlantic slave trade, where they didn't teach you in school. I did a special session of the class on Friday because I was uh, out of town this weekend. It could not teach the class. So we'll give a, um, a brief recap on um, that as well. All right. Now, on the African History Network show, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the, di throughout the diaspora and around the world because right now it's correct your own behavior. What you do for yourself, what you do to yourself, and what you allow other people to do to you and get away with is based upon what you think about yourself. What you think about yourself is based upon what you have been taught about yourself. What you've been taught about yourself is based upon everything you've read, heard, and seen about yourself. So when you control the radius of a man or woman's thoughts, you can control the compass of his or her actions because the mind can't do or teach what it doesn't know. Now, we deal with a number of different topics here on the African History Network show. We deal with current events in history and politics, education, economic empowerment, entrepreneurship, relationships, love, sex, health issues, and much more. Email newsletter, text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, to 22828. The sign up for our email newsletter, text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, to 22828. The sign up for our email newsletter. Also visit our website. Um, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com to uh, sign up for the email newsletter there as well. Okay, so early in the week, I, I, I posted this story on our Facebook uh, page, The African History, African History Network, and it deals with um, the, uh, racism when it comes to home appraisal racism when it comes to home appraisals. And there's, uh, there's a huge story from the New York Times uh, dealing with this. Uh, the name of the story, Home Appraised uh, with a Black Owner, $472,000, with a White Owner, uh, $750,000. Home Appraised uh, with a Black Owner, $472,000 with the white owner, $750,000. Okay. So uh, I want to talk about that here in the uh, first, uh, uh, as a lead story today, uh, we're broadcasting on our Facebook fan page, the African history network, the African history network and our YouTube channel, Michael M. Hotep, I M H O T E P. 
uh, as well. So we're working through uh, some technical difficulties here. But if we look at this uh, first story, now this is from August 18th, 2022 from the New York Times, and it was updated uh, August 19th. Um, Nathan, Dr. Nathan Connolly and his wife, Shani Mott, say an appraisal company undervalued the home based on their race. The couple has filed a lawsuit in Maryland. The couple has filed a lawsuit uh, in Maryland. Now, and here's a uh, picture of the couple as well. Now, they messed to the wrong person because he's a uh, Dr. Con uh, Dr. Nathan Conley is a professor of history at John Hopkins University. Okay, so last summer Nathan Conley and his wife Shani Mott, uh, M O T T, uh, welcomed an appraiser into their house in Baltimore, Maryland, hoping to take advantage of historically low interest rates uh, and refinance and, and refinance their mortgage. Now we also talked about how uh, uh, Wells Fargo came under fire when they turned away more applications to refinance home mortgages from African-American lenders than they actually approved. Now that's being investigated, but um, we, we dealt, we've dealt with that story here dealing with Wells Fargo also. Okay, now they believe, the couple believe that their house uh, improved with a new $5,000 uh, tankless water heater and a thirty and $35,000 in renovations. They believe that the house was worth uh, more than $450,000, that more than the $450,000 that they paid uh, for the house in 2017. Now, home prices have uh, been on the rise nationwide since the pandemic uh, in Baltimore, Maryland. They have gone up, home prices have gone up 42% in the past five years, 42% in the past five years, according to the website flow.com. But 2020 valuations, the Maryland appraisal company, 2020 valuations, put the home's value at $472,000 and in turn, Loan Depot, a mortgage lender, denied the couple refinance loan, denied the couple a refinance loan because of the appraisal value. Now, Dr. Nathan Connolly said he knew why. He, his wife and three children, his children are aged uh, 50, ages 15, 12, and nine, are African-American. Uh, now, Dr. Nathan Conley is a professor of history at John Hopkins University, and he is an expert on redlining and the legacy of white supremacy, redlining and the legacy of white supremacy in American cities. And much of his research focuses on the role of race in the housing market. Now, months after the phrasal, the uh, couple applied for another finance loan. They removed family photos and had a white male colleague who was another John Hopkins University professor, Johns Hopkins, Johns Hopkins University. Uh, uh, the, the white colleague is a, uh, another Johns Hopkins University professor. So they had um, 
the, the, the white friend stand in for them as the homeowner. And we've seen, we've covered numerous stories about the same phenomenon happening. And when this happens and they have somebody white to sit in to pretend to be the homeowner, they took down all the African art. They took down all the African-American and African related books. You know, I don't know if you want to have the destruction of black civilization, you know, out when the white appraiser comes, you know, by Dr. Chancellor Williams, fantastic book. Don't know if you want to have that on the coffee table when the white appraiser comes. Okay. How Europe underdeveloped Africa by Walter Rodney, a uh, black man in the now and his family, by Dr. Yosef Ben Yakinen, Christopher Columbus and the African Holocaust, slavery and the rise of European capitalism by Dr. John Henry Clark, fantastic books. I don't think you want to have those on the coffee table or have those visible when the white appraiser comes. So they take down all the African art, they take down the Terry McMillan books, they take down anything, they take down all the pictures, etc. And then they make it look like somebody white lives, white lives there. And all of a sudden, <laughs> the, the second appraiser, right, valued the house at $750,000. Valued the house at $750,000, okay? Um, we're going to continue this on the other side of the break. Also, we're going to be joined by Amari Osei uh, to talk about the uh, UNIA's uh, 64th Annual International Convention. You listen to the African History Network show. I'm Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. Welcome back to the African History Network show. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM, the Superstation, the Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotep. It is Sunday, August 21st, 2022. All right, and we are live once again. Um, so right before the break, we were dealing with this story um, that came from the New York Times and the other news outlets picked up this story also. Uh, home appraised with a black homeowner, $472,000 with a white homeowner, what the white homeowner $750,000. There's an article also from uh, CNN uh, on this topic as well from August 19th, uh, 2022. They talked about Dr. Nathan Connolly and his wife, Shani Mott, uh, as well, filing a lawsuit against 2020 Valuations LLC. Uh, so we're going to uh, pick this story up again uh, on the other side of this interview. Uh, I want to go to uh, uh, on the phone lines. We're joined by uh, Amario Say, and Amario Say is with the uh, Universal Negro Improvement Association, the UNIA, the uh, organization that um, uh, Marcus Garvey uh, founded and uh, started in Jamaica in uh, 1914, and then we know he comes to uh, the U.S. in um, 1915, and uh, he starts setting up. Well, actually, comes to the U.S. in 1916, year after um, Booker T. Washington dies, and he starts setting up chapters of the UNIA uh, here in the U.S. So they have a uh, international convention, uh, the 64th annual international convention, uh, coming up here in Detroit, and he's here to uh, give us some information on that. So, welcome to the African History Network show, Mario. Say, how you doing today, brother? I'm doing well. Uh, thank you, Michael, for having me. All right. Uh, I'm, doing, I'm doing really well. I'm in, in very good shape. Just left the healing drum circle. 
Okay. So I'm, I'm fired up. All right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so the conference is coming up. Um, and for, first off, we know we just uh, celebrated the 135th uh, birthday. Uh, I think it was 135th birthday, uh, August 17th of uh, Marcus Garvey. He was born in 1887 in uh, Jamaica. So uh, before we go any further, uh, give us uh, talk a little bit about uh, Marcus Garvey and uh, his significance when it comes to um, African American history. Okay, especially being that his birthday just passed. Give us give people a little background information who may not know on uh, Marcus Mosiah Garvey. Thank you very much, uh, Michael and Hotep. The Honorable uh, Marcus Mosiah Garvey. Uh, he came here to the United States in the early 1900s. And when he arrived here in the United States, he asked himself the question and the people the question, where is the black man's government? Right. Where is the men of principle? Where are the men of big affairs? Where are the men that stand for something? And when he didn't see that, he went about to organize black people so that black people could organize themselves back into self-governance. So he established the Universal Negro Improvement Association, which wasn't received well in Jamaica. But when he came here to the United States, his membership swelled because obviously the people here saw the need for unification of our people. Right. So Garvey went about to establish the UNI with his wife, Amy Jakes Garvey. And he worked tirelessly. He established the largest black organization documented in United States history. Right. However, the counterintelligence program of the United States government worked against the organization. Therefore, they attempted to thwart the organization, but they could not stump it out. And we're still here. We're still organizing. And we have come to the place where we're celebrating 64 years of coming together at convention so that we can take care of the business of our government. And so the Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey is one that we should study his life, study his work and see how we can build on that foundation. Because he came amongst us with a clear vision and insight to unite a people that needed to be united, who had to be reminded that they have come from greatness. Right. So he said about to instill racial pride. He gave us economy. He went on to establish the Black Star Line. And he made agreements with the Liberian government so that we can repatriate back to Liberia before the Liberian heads of state were influenced by the United States leaders at the time. Mm -hmm. So the deal that he had made with the Liberian government to, to buy land and to begin to plant and root ourselves in Liberia was by the United States government. So 
so we could go on and on about our great ancestor, the Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey. Right. Right. However, mm -hmm. go, ahead. go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Finish your thought. Go ahead. So we could go on and on about uh, our great ancestor, the Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey. But I want to leave you with this thought. He left this with us. He said, up you mighty race. Accomplish what you will. Right. Exactly. So so there there was a what was called the Garvey Must Go campaign. You had people like A. Philip Randolph, Brotherhood of Sleeper Car Porters. You had Dr. W.B. Du Bois. You had other leading African-American um, activists, civil rights activists, um, leaders, things like this. Uh, many of them were against Garvey for various reasons, against the uh, him setting up chapters here of the UNIA. There were some, some of them were like, who is this guy from Jamaica coming here telling us what to do, you know, telling us what to do or trying to show us what to do, things like this. So what the, because you're because you're a member and let people know what your official position is also with the UNIA is a second vice president in the UNIA Division 407. Is that correct? Yes, brother. Thank you very much. Yes. Uh, second vice president of Division 407. Right. Uh, which. It has been established for 100 years. Mm -hmm. So, so let people. And my name is Omari Pollitt Osei. Okay, Omari, what? What's the middle name? What's the middle name? Pollitt. Okay, Osei. Uh, so, so let people uh, explain to people why was there so? We're, we're dealing with white supremacy and racism, and there's white supremacy and racism in Jamaica, Haiti. Cuba, Puerto Rico, Honduras, and keep in mind, as I, as I teach in my online classes, like ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understand the transatlantic slave trade, as as we deal with here on this on, on this show, um, the island nations, the territories that Christopher Columbus conquered on his four voyages from 1492 to 1504, have never recovered from what uh -huh. happened to them. And Jamaica is one of the lands that uh, Columbus conquers. I think it's about 1494. Uh, I think it was 1494 when he goes into uh, Jamaica. Explain to people why there was resistance from African-American leaders who are fighting against white, many of them fighting against white supremacy in various ways. Why was there resistance from them against Marcus Garvey, who's fighting against white supremacy as well and, and setting up the UNIA here in the U.S.? Well, when you when you uh, study the history of uh, the Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey, he explained that the leaders who came against him mm -hmm. in this land, they were leaders that didn't believe in in self governance. They, they their their goal was for us to integrate mm -hmm. into American society at a time when it was very clear that the racism that existed at that time and that it still exists made it very clear to us that integration wasn't the best idea. So they fought against Garvey because Garvey's concept was for black people to focus on our nation. And in fact, that's the theme of the convention, focus on the nation. Okay. So, go right ahead, brother. No, no, no. I'm, no, I'm just listening to you. I said, okay, go, go ahead, continue. 
Okay, yes. So that that's the theme of the our sixty uh, fourth annual convention is that we should focus on the nation. So you always have those who don't see the value and the people who evidence to do everything that other nations are doing for themselves. So in their own economy, uh, a system of international and transport, transporting the people in and giving giving their people a in which the flag is representing their interests, and that will give them justice. You have people that um, felt that it was not necessary for black people to be separate and to establish their own government. Also, we were experiencing uh, technical difficulties, so we're back. Uh, we're coming up on a break. We're speaking with uh, Omar Osei of the uh, Universal Negro Improvement Association, Detroit chapter. He's talking about the 64th annual convention coming up this week. We'll be back in a few minutes. The work that I do is larger than the fashion industry. It's larger than the art world. And I believe that I was born to bring newness into this world. I'm Kaima McIntyre. I'm 24 years old and I'm an artist. I create everything from paintings to jewelry design, metaphysical jewelry to be specific, and fashion design. The only reason why my prom dress went viral is because people needed it. Within a few days of going viral, Notori Naughton reached out to me. She's like, I saw your dress, can you make me a dress? I was equally as shocked to be asked by a celebrity to design their dress at the age of 17. That's just one person and the list just continues to go on to Janet Jackson, to Tyra Banks. It really hits home. That means that the discussion is happening on the grounds in real time. Ido Network International, in collaboration with STL Black Woman, DACA, and ACTA, present the Royal Pilgrimage to the Americas, August 24th through the 28th. The African kings and queens are coming to you for business, networking, and sharing of Pan-African ideals. The venue will be the illustrious En Garde Arts Hotel in St. Louis, Missouri. A royal cultural experience and exhibitions, trade and investment opportunities in Africa, the Caribbean, and the Americas. A Royal Pan-African Summit hosting keynote speakers and a red carpet banquet. Come and witness our African Royal Coronation Ceremony. Register at www.idonetwork.org to book your ticket to wine and dine with African royalty. Vendor opportunities available. Get face-to-face -face with the royals who own the land and resources for business. Contact DACA for deal room information at 602-730-4572. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 9, 10 a.m. The Superstation, the Future Radio. All right. Um, on the line, we're speaking with Omario Say, who is the uh, second vice president of the UNIA, Universal Negro Improvement Association, uh, Division 404. Uh, that's the uh, Detroit chapter. 
And we're talking some about um, Marcus Garvey, Marcus Mossad Garvey. Uh, we know his birthday was just, we commemorated that uh, August 17th. And also the 64th annual um, convention, UNIA and ACL, African uh, Communities League uh, convention is coming, the international convention is coming up um, this week here in Detroit. So, uh, Omari, give people the uh, dates of the conference, please. Okay, thank you very much, Michael. Okay, the convention uh, it, uh, begins uh, next Tuesday, uh, this coming Tuesday, uh, August 23rd. We have a mass meeting. Uh, with uh, the President General of the Universal Negro Improvement Association, our uh, international, uh, our black government, uh, uh, the Honorable Michael R. Duncan. It will be at the Coleman Young International Airport at 11499 between 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. And then also we have uh, on that on Wednesday, our panel discussion where we have invited a variety of leaders from different religious organizations who are also uh, aware of the need of our nation to support and focus on our issues that concern us. So right. the panel discussion will be Wednesday, August 24th at the Barack Obama Academy, right. which before was Barack Obama Academy, it was Timbuktu Academy. Right. At 10800 East Canfield, Michigan, from 6 p.m. until 9 p.m. Next on our itinerary flower convention, where the public is welcome, to at the museum. We're having a tour of the museum, the Charles H. Wright Museum. That's on Thursday, August 25th at 315 East Warren, Detroit, Michigan. And this is from 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. And you don't want to miss our gala. We have our red, black, and green gala. It's going to be good food, good music, presentations, you don't want to miss it. The gala, the red, black, and green gala, come with your, your your red, black, and green, smelling good and looking good. And that is on a Friday, August 26th, at, at Complex Banquet Hall, 3800 Pearson, Detroit, Michigan, from 7 p.m. to 10.30 p.m. Now we conclude our... Uh, Internet 64th International Convention by celebrating with the parade. The parade is with Mac Alive, and that will be Saturday, August 27th at St. John and Mac Avenue. This is family service day, so it'll be from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. For more information, you can call area code 313. 739-4212. Again, 
or 313-728-4542. Again, 313-728-4542 for information regarding the convention. And if you have a, a desire or a need to do vending, if you're interested in vending, excuse me, call area code 248-508-3523. Again, area code 248-508-3523 for vending. And also call 313-769-8647 if you can't get through to the 248 number. Call area code, again, 313-769-8647. Eight six four seven. If you're interested in vending, absolutely. All Come right. join us. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. At our 64th international convention. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Explain to people um, African communities because this is the Universal Negro Improvement Association, Universal Negro Improvement Association, and African Communities League. Explain the ACL part, the African Communities League, because oftentimes when people talk about Marcus Garvey and the UNIA, they leave off the ACL. So explain the significance of the African Communities League. Yeah, so the portion of the, the African Communities League is the portion of the UNIA that deals with the Black Cross nurses, uh, women that was established within the government to take care of of the health concerns, psychological, physical, anything regarding the health of the nation, the Black Cross nurses were under the umbrella of the African Communities League to provide the assistance to the nation. Also under uh, the umbrella of the African Communities League, you have the military of the UNI that has to be revived. So those were the major functions of the African uh, Communities League of the Universal Negro Improvement Association. Now, um, at the uh, convention in 1920, they, um, I think it was the convention in 1920, yeah, they adopted the uh, what we call the Pan-African flag or the bandera, the red, black, and green flag. Uh, explain uh, the significance of that flag. If I remember correctly, that convention was uh, August 13th, 1920. Explain to people the significance of that flag. Thank you very much. And that's uh, also uh, the keynote speech of the President General will also go into depth and dealing with uh, the, the red, black, and green flag. So you don't want to miss the mass meeting. However, the red, black, and, free, the red, black, and green flag became a necessity because it, it, it came to us at a time when we were being taunted as a nation of people by this infrastructure here in the United States and uh, white supremacy. We were being taunted for not having a flag that represented and gave our best interest and gave us justice. So the Honorable, the Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey set out to give us a flag. Right, right. Okay. And the red, 
Okay, yeah, hold, the blood. hold it right there. Hold it right there. We're coming up on okay. a break. We'll hold you over for a few more minutes. Uh, stand by, Omar. You listen to the After History Network show. I'm Michael M. Hotel, 910 a.m. The Superstation, the Future Radio. We'll be back in a few minutes. Stand by. Stand by. Back from breaking four minutes. Stand by. from breaking four minutes all right everybody share this broadcasting on social media platforms invite your friends to tune in also stand by Matt from breaking three minutes. Back from breaking two minutes. Stand by. All right. How's everybody doing watching on Facebook and YouTube? We're having some technical difficulties tonight, but we're working through it. All right. Okay, back from break in one minute. Stand by, everybody. Come back from break. Nine ten a.m. Superstation, a division of Adele Media. The views and opinions expressed on any program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Nine Ten a.m. Superstation or Adele Media. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on Nine Ten a.m. Superstation, the future radio. I'm your host, Brother Clem Hotel. All right, right before the break, we were speaking with uh, Omari Osei. Um, who's with the UNIA, Universal Negro Improvement Association, the second vice president of Division 407. 
And he was teaching us about uh, Marcus Mosiah Garvey. We just commemorated uh, Marcus Garvey's uh, birthday, August 17th. He was born in 1887. And we were talking about uh, mm-hmm. some of the history of uh, Marcus Garvey and uh, the UNIA, and as well as the um, 64th Annual uh, International Conference uh, that's coming up uh, in Detroit, uh, also coming up this week in Detroit. Okay, so uh, let's bring them back on. All right, so uh, go ahead and finish uh, your thought, Omari. You were explaining to us the red, black, and green flag. This was... uh, adopted um, at the uh, uh, International Convention in 1920 by the UNIA. This is where this red, black, and green flag comes from. you explaining to us the significance of the red, black, and green flag or the bandera. Thank you very much, uh, Michael and Hotep, for having me. Uh, in, in the words of the Honorable Marcus Messiah Garvey, nationhood is the only means by which Modern civilization can completely protect itself. Independence of nationality, independence of government is the means of protecting not only the individual, but the group. Nationhood is the highest idea of all people. So what, what, what the Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey did for us here in America is he reintroduced us to nationhood. And with the introduction, reintroduction of nationhood, you have to have a flag that represents your nation. Mm-hmm. If you're being treated unjust by your nation that, that, that you're existing in, human right to organize yourself and to governance, self-governance, that's why he said we of the Negro race, Negro race are moving from one state of organization to another. And we shall con- and we shall so continue until we have thoroughly lifted ourselves into the organization of government. So so we had to have a flag that represented our nation. So they came up with the red, black, and green flag, red symbolizing the color of our blood. Black symbolizing the color of our skin. And the green is indicative and symbolizing the land. Right. So we thank the Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey and those who convened at that convention to give us a beautiful flag that when I, when I, when I come into contact with people who may bear the colors, oftentimes they don't even know that the organization still exists. Right. So we have work to do. So I thank you so much, uh, Michael, Michael M. Hotel, for having me on, on your show to promote and to share with, with the audience the organization that's a historic organization that have not stopped organizing and struggling to become a nation with, with land, a nation that have every other everything that every other self-respecting nation has. And we will continue to struggle, and we will continue to press, and we will continue to fight until we establish ourselves into self-governance. Right. Yeah, uh, th- th- there's a good article, and um, 
I know, I know you have to run here and we've got other topics to get to as well, but there's a good article that I reference and I use in my lectures. Uh, it's called On Flag Day, Remembering the Red, Black and Green. It's from uh, NPR.org, National Public Radio. Uh, it came out June 14, 2017, written by Leah Danella. On Flag Day, Flag Day is, is June 14th. Uh, and that's dealing with the... Um, the American flag, uh, this flag day, that's the day that uh, uh, the uh, the red, white, and blue f flag, the stars, the stars and stripes, that's the day it was adopted, um, June 14th. But on Flag Day, remembering the red, black, and green, and it deals with uh, the origins of uh, the red, black, and green flag, the bandera, the Pan-African flag. It says the Pan-African flag, also called the, uh, the Marcus Garvey UNIA Afro-American or Black Liberation flag, was de was designed to represent uh, people of the African diaspora. And as one scholar put it, to symbolize, quote unquote, black freedom, simple, to symbolize, quote unquote, black freedom. And uh, one of the things they talk about in the article, uh, they cite uh, historian Robert Hill, uh, who's a historian and scholar on Marcus Garvey. And he says that Garvey uh, thought of a flag as a necessary symbol of political maturity, a necessary symbol of political mm. maturity. And he said, quote, the fact mm. that the black race did not have a flag was considered by Marcus Garvey and he said this and he said this it was a mark of the political impotence of the black race okay mm. for not having a, a a flag he went on to say uh quote and so acquiring a flag would be proof that the black race had politically come of age end quote so uh, I encourage people to check out that uh, article as well to, to get uh, some more background uh, information. And is there a website with the information on it for, for the conference? No, we haven't established no website for it. Okay. Yeah, I've got the flyer and we have the flyer up here on the screen right now. We'll put the flyer on our website of um, theafricanhistorynetwork.com, theafricanhistorynetwork.com. We'll put the flyer up on the homepage of our website as well with the contact information. All right. So, uh, and, and then also there's a, a good article uh, that I reference as well. This is from atlantablackstar.com. Uh, even people who... Um, Garvey, uh, or people, even some people who uh, disagreed with Garvey were still influenced by him. One of them is Dr. W.B. Du Bois. But uh, there's a good article from uh, uh, AtlantaBlackStar.com from uh, March 14th, 2014. Uh, it's called 10 Leaders You May Not Have Known Were Influenced by Marcus Garvey. 10 Leaders you may not have known were influenced by Marcus Garvey. They're talking about African-American leaders. We know Dr. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was influenced by Marcus Garvey, okay? Um, and, uh, and when he went to uh, Ghana, he went to go visit the, uh, the site of, uh, of uh, Garvey's, uh, the, the site of Garvey's grave, I think it was there that he went. Uh, uh, when, when, in 1957, when... Um, uh, Dr. King went to Ghana to celebrate Ghana's independence. Um, he would uh, go every year on the anniversary of Ghana's independence uh, as well. I, I, as you I say, during the trip to Jamaica 
1965, uh, Dr. King and Coretta Scott King uh, visited a shrine of, of Garvey, uh, visited a, a shrine dedicated to Garvey uh, at his grave. But um, when in 1957, when Dr. King went to uh, Ghana for the uh, commemoration of Ghana uh, winning their independence, every year on that anniversary, he would go back to Ghana also. Okay, because Dr. King kept abreast of the um, developments of the Black Liberation Movement, the African Liberation Movement on the continent of Africa also. But they talk about how Dr. King, uh, during a trip to Jamaica on June 20th, 1965, civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. and his wife Coretta Scott King made it a point to visit the shrine of Garvey where they laid a wreath, uh, wreath on his grave. Um, in a speech, Dr. King told the audience that Marcus Garvey was the first man of color to lead a lead and develop a mass movement. He was the first man on a mass scale and and level to give millions of Negroes a sense of dignity and destiny. Millions of Negroes a sense of dignity and destiny and make the Negro feel he was somebody. That's Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. They they won't teach you that on Dr. King Day usually. But uh, <laughs> exactly. That's what we need we need we need we need that to be uh, uh, aired yeah. all over the world. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, brother Omari, I know you have to run. Uh, thanks for coming on tonight, man, and we'll we'll see you this week. Okay. Yep, Africa for the Africans. One God, one aim, one destiny. Race first. That's Thank you, Michael you. and Hotel, for having me. Ah, Shay. All right, see brother. See y'all at the fifty fourth annual convention. All right, brother. All right, take care. Have a good day. Have a good day. Peace. Thank you. All right, everybody. That was Omario Say of the um, Universal Negro Improvement Association talking about the 64th annual Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League International International Convention taking place here in Detroit um, Tuesday, August 23rd through uh, Saturday, August 27th. All right. Uh, I want to go back to uh, our lead story, and we're having some technical difficulties uh, tonight with the audio. I want to go back to our lead story. There was a, a, a huge article from the uh, New York Times, August 18th and 19th, that dealt with a, a topic we've talked about here uh, a number of times, especially in the past two years. This deals with discrimination against African Americans when it comes to home appraisals the values of, of homes. And this uh, also is related, this, this is, okay, what are we doing? This is also related to, are we still connected, Giovanni? Giovanni? This is also related to uh, the uh, racial wealth gap and a lack of intergenerational wealth, okay? Um, I, I heard like, I heard it sound like we were connecting to Skype. Giovanni, are we still connected? Okay. Okay, so uh, name of this article, Home Appraised with a Black Owner, $472,000, with a white owner, $750,000. Okay, I'm going to go back to this. Also, CNN has a really good uh, piece on this also. So Dr. Nathan Connolly, uh, and his wife, uh, Shani Mott, uh, are homeowners in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, Dr. Nathan Connolly 
He is a history professor at John, Johns Hopkins University. And after uh, making uh, improvements to the home and after getting a uh, appraisal the first time uh, for $472,000, they decided to have a white male colleague of his, uh, who's another uh, professor at Johns Hopkins, Johns Hopkins University, uh, sit in for him and uh, pretend to be the homeowner. And they made the home look like white people live there, put up white pictures, things like this, took down took down the copy of Nile Valley Contributions to Civilization by uh, uh, Tony Browder. He had the copy of Yorugu, an African-centered critique of European cultural thought and behavior by Dr. Marine Baani. You can't have that out on the coffee table when the white appraisers come, right? So the second appraiser valued the house at $750,000. So this is about a $300,000 difference. So uh, this week, this past week, Dr. Connolly and uh, Dr. Mott, uh, his, his wife has a doctorate as well, Dr. Dr. Shani Mott, sued Lone Depot, which is based in Foothill Ranch, California, as well as the uh, first um, appraisal company, which was 2020 Valuations. And uh, they also sued Shane Lanham. L-A-N-H-A-M, the owner of 2020 Valuations. Mr. Lanham is the appraiser who conducted the first appraisal. Now, Dr. Nathan Conley, who's 44 years old, said, we were clearly aware of appraisal discrimination. We were clearly aware of appraisal discrimination. But to, quote, but to be told in so many words, but to be told in so many words, that our presence and the life we've built in our home brings the property value down, it's an absolute gut punch. It's an absolute gut punch. Now, this is, um, you know, I've covered a number of different stories like this uh, here on this show. This is one of the reasons why this show is so important because we don't deal with the, the gossip. And he said, she said, and Pebbles told Cookie what she thought she heard and all this simple Simon nonsense. We do a real substance here. The home appraisal industry, which relies partly on subjective opinions, subjective opinions to translate home values into dollars and cents, has faced a firestorm of criticism over the past two years. More than 90 percent of home appraisers are white. More than 90, 97, I'm sorry, more than 97% of home appraisers are white, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And since the, uh, that's BLS.gov, Bureau of Labor Statistics, right, Labor Department. And, and since the summer of 2020, when conversations on race and discrimination in America rose to the forefront following the murder of George Floyd, Dozens of black homeowners have alleged discrimination in home valuations they receive. We'll continue this on the other side of the break. Listen to the African Street Network show. I'm Michael Limhotep. We'll be back in a few minutes.
the work that I do is larger than the fashion industry. It's larger than the art world. And I believe that I was born to bring newness into this world. I'm Kaima McIntyre. I'm 24 years old and I'm an artist. I create everything from paintings to jewelry design, metaphysical jewelry to be specific, and fashion design. The only reason why my prom dress went viral is because people needed it. Within a few days of going viral, Notori Naughton reached out to me and she's like, I saw your dress, can you make me a dress? I was equally as shocked to be asked by a celebrity to design their dress at the age of 17. That's just one person and the list just continues to go on to Janet Jackson, to Tyra Banks. It really hits home. That means that the discussion is happening on the grounds in real time. iRedify is a black-owned digital platform that showcases black and brown cultures and people. The books on the platform are written by African-American authors, Afro-Caribbean authors, African authors, and so much more. Kids 14 and under can read ebooks, listen to audiobooks, and complete learning activities. Kids can even write in the books digitally. Get unlimited access to everything on the platform for only $8.99 a month at iRedify.com. Sign up for your membership today. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM, the Superstation, the Future Radio. All right, calling numbers 313-778-7600. 313-778-7600 is the calling number if you have a question or comment. 313-778-7600 if you have a quick question or comment. Okay, uh, so our lead story was um, this uh, big article that the... Uh, Washington uh, that the New York Times had uh, this week came out August 18th. We posted the story on our Facebook fan page, the African History Network, the African History Network. If you don't follow us on Facebook, you should go ahead and follow us. Turn on live notifications so you know when we go live. Um, home appraised with a black owner, $472,000 with a white owner, $750,000. Okay. And this is uh, this continues this discussion that we've been having dealing with fighting against discrimination when it comes to home appraisals. Now, if we look at um, if we look at this here, let me see. Hold on. OK, if we look at if we go back to this article, 97 um, percent, more than 97 percent of. Uh, home appraisers are white, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And since the summer of 2020, when conversation uh, conversations on race and discrimination uh, in the home valuation, it, 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 discrimination in America rose to the forefront following the murders of George Floyd, dozens of black homeowners since then have alleged discrimination uh, in the home uh, valuations they received. Dozens of black homeowners, homeowners have alleged discrimination in the home valuations they received. Now, some have 
filed lawsuits in the Biden-Harris administration in March of 2022 announced a set plan, uh, announced a, a set of planned reforms to overhaul the appraisal industry and dismantle systemic bias. Now, this is something I've talked about because uh, if you read the 19-page document from whitehouse.gov, and I, I, I mentioned this uh, when I was on Roland Martin Unfiltered Friday. I talked about this uh, when I was on uh, Reverend Al Sharpton's show uh, for two hours. I think I mentioned this when I was on his show for two hours uh, about three weeks ago, three Wednesdays ago, when I was on Faraji Muhammad's show on uh, the Black Star Media Network, Roland Martin's network. Uh, Faraji had me on this show two Wednesdays ago. Um, the, the document is called the Biden-Harris administration advances equity and opportunity for black people and communities across the country. The Biden-Harris administration advances equity and opportunity for black people and communities across the country. So I know you have these people who call in the radio shows, national radio shows, even calling to, um, this station and, and talking about Biden and Harris haven't done anything for black people. Now, the question I ask people like that, and they don't call into this show because they know better. They ain't stupid. They're not stupid enough to call in with that type of nonsense because they know they're going to get stopped. And I'm going I'm to hit them with the facts. The question that I ask people like that is how did you do the research? What articles did you read? What report did you read? What study did you read? How did you assess the accomplishments of the Biden-Harris administration? What has happened in the past 18, 17, 18 months? How did, how did you research that before you called in the radio shows talking that simple Simon-ass nonsense? Because the evidence is there to prove that you're wrong. So this is, this is one of the things that I'm, I'm always perplexed by because Nine, 99 times out of 100, when they call in with that nonsense, I want you to pay attention to something. They never cite sources. They don't cite articles. They don't cite studies. They don't cite fact sheets. They just put out opinions as if it's facts, but they can't back it up. So most of these people won't talk about the measures that the Biden-Harris administration are taking to fight against discrimination when it comes to housing appraisals. Some have filed lawsuits in the Biden-Harris administration in March of 2022, announced a set of planned reforms to overhaul the appraisal industry and dismantle systemic bias. So the people who say Biden isn't any, doing anything for black people, why don't they talk about this? Either one, they don't know it, or two, they don't want you to know it. Now, Dr. Nathan Connolly and Dr. Shani Mott uh, live in uh, live in the north live in the North Baltimore neighborhood of Homeland Homeland H O M E L A N D, known for its strong public schools and colonial architecture, which has earned it a place on the National Register of historic places. 
a majority of their neighbors are white. A majority of their neighbors are white. Now, according to their complaint, which was filed in uh, Maryland District Court on Monday, th this past Monday, which would have been um, August 15th, the couple applied to refinance their mortgage with Loan Depot in May of 2021. The lender, Loan Depot, approved a loan at a rate of 2.25%. And according to the complaint, told the couple that their home was likely now worth $550,000 or more. $550,000 or more. Uh, to conduct the appraisal, Loan Depot hired 2020 valuations as a subcontractor. Now, Mr. Lanham, who's the owner of 2020 Valuations, conducted the inspection himself on June 14, 2021. According to the complaint, Dr. Nathan Conley and his wife, Dr. Shawnee Conley, and their three children were home during the visit, and their house was also filled with family photos, children's drawings of figures with dark skin, a poster from the film Black Panther. See, you can't, you can't, you can't be Wakanda forever when the white appraisers come. Love the film Black Panther. Don't you got to have Black Panther when? The, and you you also got to have the Black Panthers. You can't have you can't have a picture up of, of Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale when the white appraisers come. I'm just hey, Huey P. Newton's one of my frat brothers, Five Beta Sigma Fraternity Incorporated. But I'm telling you, when the white appraisers come, it's not a good idea to have. The Black Panther Party for Self-Defense have a picture up there with them with guns when the white appraisers come. I'm just, it's just don't have, don't have the Black Panther, okay, from Wakanda, and don't have the Black Panthers from Oakland, from Oakland, California, up when when the white appraisers come. Okay, uh, you can do what you want to do, take them down, put them back up when they leave. I'm just saying, okay, <laughs> when, when when we're trying to score high on the appraisal list, you did, uh, nah, you, you need to take it down. Okay, so they had a poster from the film Black Panther and literature by black authors. Now, Dr. Shani Mott lectures on literature and, Afri and, and Africana studies. You got to take down the, the Terry McMillan. You got to take down the Toni Morrison. You know, you got to take down the James Baldwin. You had to hide that. Um, you know, you, you, it's, it's uh, so th this, is, this is the games uh, people have to play. OK, you may be able to get away with a book by that. No, you can't get away with a book by Dr. King. Uh, where do we go from here? Chaos or community. You got to hide uh, the autobiography, Malcolm X. OK, you got all that stuff. You got to put it away. OK. <laughs> all right. Now, let's continue. So. Um, quote, it would have been obvious to anyone visiting the home. To a, uh, it would have been obvious to anyone visiting that the home belonged to a black family, the complaint said. The appraisal came back just $22,000 more than the family had paid for the home and Loan Depot based its, based its rejection on the couple's application on the low number. Loan Depot based its rejection of the couple's application on the low number. Okay, we'll continue this on the other side of the break. Also, we'll talk about uh, the Department of Justice um, 
the Department of Justice saying that Florida targets African-American voters. We'll discuss that as well. This is the African History Network show. I'm Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation, the future radio. Okay, uh, let's go back to this article here quickly. Calling numbers 313-778-7600. 313-778-7600 is the calling number. If you have a quick question or comment. All right, so um, the right before the break, we were talking about this story from uh, the New York Times. Home appraised with a black owner, $472,000, with a white owner, $750,000. Now, it, um, the couple, uh, Dr. Uh, Nathan Conley and Dr. Shani Mott, uh, the couple criticized the way that Mr. Lanham, who, who owned 2020 uh, valuations, which is the home appraisal company. The couple criticized the way Mr. Lanham came up with his appraisal. Now, home appraisers uh, frequently uh, rely upon uh, the sales comparison approach, in which they weigh real, uh, in which they weigh real estate against the sale prices of similar nearby homes to determine value similar nearby homes to determine value. Now, uh, in Mr. Lanham's appraisal, he selected three homes with value ranges uh, from $435,000 to $545,000. Three homes with values ranging from $435,000 to $545,000. A fourth comparable uh, or comp, as it's called, a fourth comparable, which sold for $650,000, was ultimately not used in his valuation. Now, the first home used the complaint, uh, the first home used, the complaint argues, would be considered a fixer-upper, which the home of Dr. Nathan Conley and Dr. Shani Mott is not, Okay. Now, the second home is outside the boundaries of the homeland neighborhood where they live amid a majority uh, black census block of homes. Now, the neighborhood that they live in is a predominantly white neighborhood. OK, so the second home that was that that was the comp or comparable is outside of the boundaries of the homeland neighborhood where they live. And it's amid a majority black census block of homes. In the third home that was used in the comparison, Mr. Lanham, uh, according to according to the complaint, deducted fifty thousand dollars from the comparison, from the comparison amount because Dr. Connolly and Dr. Mott's home faces a busy street, faces a busy street. A deduction, the complaint says that quote is excessive and is inconsistent with proper appraisal practices. The complaint says that this deduction of $50,000 because the home faces a busy street is, is quote, is, is excessive and is inconsistent with proper appraisal practices, end quote. Now, another $20,000 was deducted 
for the quality of construction, for the quality of construction. Now, all of the selected comparable homes, the complaint says, were of lower quality than Dr. Conley and Dr. Mott's home. And the appraisal incorrectly stated that their home had not received any updates for 15 years. That's false also. The appraisal also incorrectly, according to them, states that, according to the complaint, states that their home had not received any updates, any improvements for 15 years. Now, according to the complaint, Mr. Lanham, quote, cherry picked low value homes as comps, end quote, and by doing so, he, quote, ignored legitimately comparable homes with much higher sales prices, end quote. Now, when reached by phone uh, this past Tuesday, uh, Mr. Lanham declined to comment. Dr. Uh, Nathan Conley and Dr. Shani Mott uh, wrote a letter to Christian uh, Jorgensen, a lending officer at Loan Depot, who had been their who had been their main point of contact up to that point, challenging the appraisal. So when we get these lowball appraisals, we have to challenge them because you're dealing this 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 is directly related to the racial wealth gap. This is directly related to a lack of intergenerational wealth. So when we get these low appraisals, we have to challenge. Now, according to the complaint, the loan officer, Christian Jorgensen, then stopped responding to their calls. Now, uh, Jorgensen did not respond to requests for comment from the New York Times either. Now, several months later, the couple applied for a new loan with Swift home loans, Swift home loans, which partnered with Rocket Mortgage. This is here in Detroit, Rocket Mortgage, Dan Gilbert. This time they underwent a quote unquote whitewashing experiment, a whitewashing experiment. And this is one of the few times when I agree with whitewashing. Removing indications of blackness from their home and replacing them with signifiers uh, that a white family might live there instead. Now they cleared their bookshelves of works by black authors. Okay. Yeah. Cause you gotta, you know, you gotta hide your copy. You gotta hide, uh, your, your book dealing with the Nat Turner rebellion. You gotta hide your, your book dealing with, uh, the Amistad slave revolt. You know, all you can't, can't have all that stuff up. You got to put that in somewhere, take it over to a friend's house or something like that. You got to have the miseducation of the Negro by Dr. Carter G. Woodson. Uh, James H. Cone's book. Uh, uh, Martin Malcolm in America, a dream or a nightmare. Uh, you definitely got to you definitely have to hide um, the book by Professor uh, Charles E. Cobb Jr. Let me see. Can I put my hands on it? I think I have it right here in this stack. Uh, he was a field secretary for SNCC. Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee for five years in rural Mississippi. And he was organizing African-Americans uh, to register to vote in rural Mississippi. OK, we know Mississippi was the lynching capital of America from 1882 to 1968. Mississippi had 581 lynchings from 1882 to 1968. 
the most number of lynchings out of any state in the country. Okay. Now this book right here, if you're trying to whitewash your home to get a higher appraisal, this is one of the very few times I agree with whitewashing. You cannot have this book anywhere on the premises. The name of this book is called this nonviolent stuff will get you killed. How guns made the civil rights movement possible. Okay. This, you can't have this book anywhere on the premises. I'm not, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to tell you. Okay. You can't, I love the book. Love professor Charles E. Combs Jr. This, you can't, you can't do that. When the white appraiser comes, you have to, you have to hide the book. Okay. <laughs> so, um, let's go back to, hold on. let's go back to the article here. And let's go to this one right here. All right. So they went through a whitewashing. All right. They cleared their bookshelves of works by black authors. They asked uh, white friends to share family photos and place those pictures in frames around the house on their walls. They hung art bought at Ikea that showed uh, white people. OK, so. <laughs> so this is understanding the rules of the game. Now, an American flag that was uh, presented to Dr. Uh, Shani Mott 10 years ago after the death of her father, uh, who was a Vietnam veteran, was removed uh, from storage, framed and placed on the mantle. Your posters of Colin Kaepernick, you got to take that down. Your pictures of, uh, of Malcolm X and Dr. King, your pictures of Marcus Mosiah Garvey, you got to take down the red, black and green flag, the bandera, you got to take that down. You can't have that when the white appraiser comes. I'm just I'm just trying to tell I'm trying to help you out here. All right. Quote, we had we had to have a conversation with our kids about why we're pulling down all their drawings. Dr. Nathan Conley said, quote, it's very humiliating to strip yourself of your own home. It's very humiliating to strip yourself of your own home. All right. Now, on the day um on the day of the second appraisal, on the day of the second appraisal, they left their home and had uh, the white colleague answer the door. Okay, so he goes to the door like Mr. Belvedere or something like that. All right. On the day of the second appraisal, they had their white colleague answer the door. The second appraiser provided the $750,000 uh, estimate. Now, the homes pulled by the second appraiser were of significantly higher value than those selected by Mr. Lanham, according to the complaint, who owns 2020 Valuation Appraisal Company. The homes pulled by the second appraiser uh, were valued between $749,000 and $785,000. And while Mr. Lanham docked or or uh, uh, took away $50,000 or 10% from the comparable homes that were not on uh, a busy road, that were not on a busy road, the second appraiser deducted $15,000 or 2%. The complaint says that the 2% adjustment is consistent with industry standards. The $50,000 adjustment is not. We'll continue this on the other side of the break. This is to the African History Network show. I'm Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. Mm -hmm.
IDO Network International, in collaboration with STL Black Woman, DACA, and ACTA, present the Royal Pilgrimage to the Americas, August 24th through the 28th. The African kings and queens are coming to you for business, networking, and sharing of Pan-African ideals. The venue will be the illustrious En Garde Arts Hotel in St. Louis, Missouri. A royal cultural experience and exhibitions, trade and investment opportunities in Africa, the Caribbean, and the Americas. A Royal Pan-African Summit hosting keynote speakers and a red carpet banquet. Come and witness our African Royal Coronation Ceremony. Register at www.idonetwork.org to book your ticket to wine and dine with African royalty. Vendor opportunities available. Get face-to-face -face with the royals who own the land and resources for business. Contact DACA for deal room information at 602-730-4572. The work that I do is larger than the fashion industry, it's larger than the art world, and I believe that I was born to bring newness into this world. I'm Kaima McIntyre, I'm 24 years old and I'm an artist. I create everything from paintings to jewelry design, metaphysical jewelry to be specific, and fashion design. The only reason why my prom dress went viral is because people needed it. Within a few days of going viral, Notori Naughton reached out to me. She's like, I saw your dress, can you make me a dress? I was equally as shocked to be asked by a celebrity to design their dress at the age of 17. That's just one person and the list just continues to go on to Janet Jackson, to Tyra Banks. It really hits home. That means that the discussion is happening on the grounds in real time. Welcome back to the African History Network show. All right, uh, in just a minute, Giovanni, we're going to clip number one. Okay, so uh, just uh, make sure that one's ready. Okay, I want to wrap up with this um, article here from the New York Times, and this was our lead story. Uh, so this deals with, once again, another um, lawsuit dealing with discrimination when it comes to the appraisal market. All right. Now, uh, for this, the second appraisal only deducted $15,000 for the uh, for the home facing a busy street, whereas the first appraisal, uh, they were uh, deducted $50,000, the, the $15,000 deduction or 2% of the overall appraisal value uh, is consistent with industry standards, is consistent with industry standards. Now, race has long played a role in uh, housing policy in the United States. And African-Americans are denied mortgages at a disproportionate rate. Now, the impact of redlining, which is a, a racist depression era uh, housing policy, Continue, and it, it comes out comes from the uh, homeowners loan corporation developed about 1934. So, uh, comes from the homeowners loan corporation. So, redlining was created by the federal government. The impact of redlining, uh, which is a racist depression era housing policy, continues to drive down home values in African American neighborhoods and deprive resources for communities of color especially African-American communities. But Dr. Mott and Dr. Connolly do not live in a black neighborhood. As I said, they live in a majority white neighborhood. The disparity 
in their two appraisals echoes a lawsuit brought by Tanisha Tate Austin and Paul Austin, a black couple in California's um, California's Bay Area, who have accused an appraiser of lowballing their about five hundred thousand dollars. We talked about that case here on this show as well. Now that case said that uh, Mr. Austin is scheduled. That case said uh, Mr. Austin is scheduled for mediation, a chance to resolve the matter before heading to court uh, in September 2022. Uh, Mr. Austin said we're looking to to hold people accountable. And that's what you have to do. We're looking to hold people accountable. Now, the Department of Justice made the unusual move in February of 2022, issuing a statement of interest in the Austin case. Okay. Um, uh, the case of uh, Tanisha Tate Austin and her, and her husband, Paul Austin. The, Depart the U.S. Department of Justice under Attorney General Merrick Garland, not William Barr, but Merrick Garland, made the unusual move in February of 2022 of issuing a statement of interest in the Austin case, underscoring the fact that appraisers who are bound by their housing act of 1968 to not discriminate can be held legally liable if they do, can be held legally liable if they do. Now, uh, Paul Austin, uh, said it was a big step for the Biden-Harris administration to say that they want to want the appraisal industry to be overhauled. Now, why more people are not talking about this? I don't know, especially these simple Simon-ass people who keep calling to these radio shows saying that the Biden-Harris administration they're not doing anything for black people. Notice they don't cite sources. They don't cite articles. They don't cite studies. They definitely don't cite this document here that i've talked about numerous times before and um to my knowledge i'm the only person that's talking about this document which i really don't understand um i don't think i've heard anybody from the white house talk about this i haven't heard tiffany cross haven't heard joanne reed um, um haven't heard anybody else i talked about this on reverend al sharpton show when i was on i, I, I referenced this almost every week on roland martin and filter i'm the only person i've heard talk about this document i've I, I don't even understand that. That makes absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. All, all the black people in the media ain't heard one person talk about this. The Biden-Harris administration advances equity and opportunity for black people and communities across the country. Now, this was last updated February 28th, 2022. The original one came out October 2021. This has to be updated because there's so much that's happened since February 28th, 2022. Emmett Till anti-lynching bill. Jessica Tanji Brown Jackson, uh, the uh, the uh, executive order thirteen nine eight five, the implementation uh, of the three hundred strategies across ninety federal agencies to address uh, racism and discrimination, things like this. The the implement the releasing of those uh, strategies came after February twenty eighth, twenty twenty two. But if we just look here, uh, they talk about home appraisals, okay? Ensuring, let's let's blow this up for the for the so I want you to take a screenshot of this. All these dumbasses that call into these shows or that you know or that you follow on social media, uh, I, I want you to screenshot this and show it to them and ask them 
why aren't you talking about this? Okay, I find it very strange you're not talking about this. Ensuring black homeowners get full value for their homes. Ensuring black homeowners get full value for their homes. In June 2021, Biden-Harris administration, President Biden directed the launch of a first-of-its-kind interagency effort to address inequity in home appraisals and conduct rulemaking to aggressively combat housing discrimination. Rulemaking to aggressively combat housing discrimination. The effort led by the Department of Housing and Urban Development, better known as HUD. Now that's Secretary Marsha Fudge, former member of the Congressional Black Caucus. The effort led by the Department of Housing and Urban Development, uh, Secretary Marsha Fudge and Domestic Policy Advisor Susan Rice is developing a set of uh, policy actions and recommendations for President Biden to redress racial bias in home appraisals that will soon be released. Okay, and it's been released since then. If I remember correctly, it's been released since uh, February 28, twenty twenty two. Protecting, and then they go on to talk about protecting black uh, black Americans' access to housing by combating housing discrimination. Read this. This is part of this nineteen page document that nobody talks about. If you know somebody else that talks about this document besides me and before me, please let me know because I don't know who they are. Um, this is at whitehouse.gov, official website of the White House. Pretty powerful uh, document, pretty powerful website. So check that out. Uh, read the rest of that article. If those watching on Facebook and YouTube, keep watching for uh, a few minutes more. Because we're going to squeeze in the uh, segment from Roland Martin unfiltered. We're out of time here on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation WFDF. We ran into some technical difficulties. Be sure to visit my website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com and TheAfricanHistoryNetwork.com, my new website. Uh, you can register for the online history classes uh, I teach on Saturdays and Sundays. Uh, Saturdays, it is Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. We deal with thousands of years of history and what leads up to the transatlantic slave trade taking place right now for limited time only. Classes on sale $60, regularly $130. As soon as you register, you can watch the class we just did this past Friday, okay? And we do the sessions live. All the sessions are archived and recorded. You can go back and watch it anytime. And then on Sundays, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement of Black Power, 1865 to 1968. All right, remember, right now is correct wrong behavior. It's not over till we win. We're kind of forever, and we'll talk to you next week. Peace. All right. So there was a, we talked about this on Roland Martin Unfiltered on Friday. There's a good article from uh, theroot.com dealing with this that they picked up from, uh, they picked this up from The Guardian. DOJ says Florida Republicans specifically targeted uh, black voters with restrictions. Florida's SB 90 uh, law wants uh, to restrict the the availability of absentee ballot drop boxes and food and water access at at voting stations, okay? And so a a recent filing, a recent filing by the Department of Justice uh, stated to a federal appellate court that they agreed with U.S. District Judge Mark Walker's ruling to block new restrictions for now, to block 
new restrictions for now. In particular, the um, in particular, the Department of Justice felt that Florida lawmakers enacted these restrictions because of the surge of black turnout during uh, the 2020 presidential election, okay? And this is what we saw this uh, across the country, starting with Georgia, with Senate Bill 202, and enacting these uh, uh, restrictions. Now, 1.9 million voters are said to reside in Florida as, uh, as per the state's uh, division of elections. Now, uh, US, uh, U.S. Court of Appeals uh, for the 11th Circuit paused the, uh, the ruling earlier this year while considering an appeal from uh, Florida officials, while considering an appeal from Florida officials. Now, the, the article that they cited from The Guardian uh, said, quote, the district court's core factual findings are that in the face of surging turnout in the 2020 election, the Florida legislature, the Florida state legislature, responded by enacting provisions that impose disparate burdens on black voters, the Department of uh, Justice lawyers wrote in their brief, quote, which were chosen precisely because of those burdens to secure a partisan advantage, the court's findings of discriminatory intent are permissible, are, are a per permissible view of the record based on the entirety of the evidence. Quote, which were chosen precisely, these voter suppression tactics were chosen precisely because of those burdens to secure a partisan advantage. The court's findings of discriminatory intent are permissible, are a permissible view based on the entirety of the evidence. Okay, now, if we look here, testing, testing. Okay, if we look here, uh, if we continue with this, now, while Florida officials claim the law does not discriminate against African-Americans, the, the Department of Justice believes it violates Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, which prohibits racial discrimination in voting practices. In addition, Democratic attorneys, uh, attorneys general from 16 states filed a friend of the court brief to ask an appeals court to reject those restrictions. Now, as a Orlando Weekly, the newspaper Orlando Weekly notes, officials such as District of Columbia Attorney General Carl Racine and New York Attorney General Letitia James stated, quote, the use of drop boxes and mail ballots more generally are well-established practices in Florida and around the country, and neither has given rise to substantial fraud, and neither has given rise 
to substantial fraud. Okay, so we, we talked about this um, Friday on Roland Martin Unfiltered, and we spoke with uh, Cliff Albright, who is the uh, co-founder of Black Voters Matters. Black Voters Matter. So I want to go to uh, that uh, clip here, that interview. Okay, let's go to this clip. The Justice Department claims Florida Republicans intentionally targeted black voters with restrictions which will surely hamper turnout in the upcoming midterm election. Now, Wednesday's filing stems from Florida's SB 90 law restricting the availability of absentee ballot drop boxes, regulations for third-party voter registration groups, and a ban on providing food and water to people standing in line to vote. Now, the DOJ, DOJ stated to the federal appellate court that they agreed with Judge Mark Walker's ruling to block new restrictions, adding that they believe the law was enacted due to a surge of black voter turnout in the state. Cliff Albright, co-founder of Black Voters Matter, joins me from Atlanta. Cliff. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me. Yes, thank you for joining us. So tell me, what's your thoughts on, on this lawsuit? Yeah, I mean, our, our thoughts on this lawsuit have, have been pretty clear, especially since we're one of the, um, one of the litigants, one of the plaintiffs. Um, and, and not just this case, but a couple of cases against uh, DeSantis in the, in the state of Florida. But yeah, we definitely agree with um, what the Department of Justice is arguing in, in their supportive brief. We're, we're thankful to see the Department of Justice once again weighing in on this. Of course, the department has, has actually filed litigation, filed lawsuits in a couple of other states, including in Georgia. Um, but, you know, we're glad to see that in, in this situation where they're not necessarily filing, but um, filing a supportive brief. That, um, that they agree with our position. And if they agree with the original court position, we got to keep in mind that the original court that heard this case, not only did they say that what DeSantis and the state of Florida had tried to do was unconstitutional, they said it was so egregious that it had targeted black voters so much that they actually suggested they ruled that the state of Florida be banned from being able to pass, basically that they get um, waived into the same preclearance type arrangement that used to exist under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. They said that for 10 years before Florida can do anything like this, that they would have to have, you know, such efforts be be uh, reviewed and, and pre-cleared. That's how egregious that the original court said that it was. So we're glad to see that the Department of Justice is, is taking sides with that, which is no small thing, because as, as we all know, the Department of Justice is, is usually very hesitant to weigh in on cases unless They've got some very clear evidence, and they feel um, they feel that there's a, a strong case of discrimination. And how inhumane is that to limit people from being able to drink water or eat food when you're standing in a long line in Florida where you know temperatures can get very high and humidity as well? So, I mean, just that in itself is just seems very inhumane. Um, now, I want to go to our panelists and also get their take on what's going on. Joining me right now, I have Michael Imhotep. He's the host of the African History Network show. We also have Matt Manning, a civil rights attorney. And we also have Dr. Neambi Carter from Howard University's Department of Political Science. Thank you all for joining us today. Um, and so I wanted to get your thoughts as well on this lawsuit. And then I'm also going to uh, talk about uh, some arrests that were made, but we'll get to that uh, next after you answer what your thoughts are on this lawsuit. Okay, so I want to go to the uh, next segment here and let's advance this. Okay, and this is uh, attorney Matt Manning uh, speaking, civil rights attorney Matt Manning. 
constitutional issue. How <clears throat> difficult would it be for citizens to file lawsuits if they feel that their rights were being impeded on um, in the upcoming elections? Uh, to, to be honest with you, that's probably a better question for Cliff, just because I'm not as well um, versed in the individual person's right. But I will say I'm glad that Black Voters Matter and League of Women Voters, which for your, your viewers is important to know, one of the seminal Florida voting cases as it relates to state uh, voting issues in Florida is another League of Women Voters uh, case. So I think citizens getting together with other citizens through organizations like Black Voters Matter are particularly important because it shows that it's not a one-off. It shows that y'all are attacking all of us and we're standing together to not allow that to happen. So in terms of the actual mechanism, I'm not positive. But in terms of the group mechanism, as we see here with Black Voters Matter being uh, one of the plaintiffs, I think it's important that there's that galvanization to show that there are many people standing together. Cliff, would you like to add anything? Yeah, I think I'm glad you asked the question because that's actually, you know, the, the, the crux of the reason why the Voting Rights Act was so important and why Section 5 um, and Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act is so important because what we know is this, it is difficult for individuals, when individually wrong, to then have to bring a case saying that they took away my right to vote, they wouldn't let me register, et cetera, et cetera, right? That's how come having that preclearance to preempt states from even passing such discriminatory laws is so important because it's a hard burden for individuals to take that up. It's a hard burden for organizations like ours to take that up. It takes time, it takes resources, it takes money, it takes legal support. It can't be done at the at the individual level. That's why we've got to have strong, um, um, strong federal uh, voting rights legislation that keeps it from even getting to this point. And think about the reverse, right? Think if, if, if you're one of these people, I, I don't want to jump ahead in your stories, but you know, if you're one of these people, who's been arrested um, because of whether you're Crystal Mason in, in Texas or like some of these people that have now been arrested in Florida, again, as an individual to have to defend yourself, right, to have to get legal support, to have to go through that at the individual level is very difficult. That's why it's important that we have the ability for organizations, uh, civil rights groups, um, some of the incredible attorneys that have been working on these cases to be able to preemptively deal with these things or, or for the federal government to have to pre-clear to keep us from even getting to this point, to keep individuals from having to bear the brunt of, of their own voter suppression. Hmm. Now, we haven't heard from Michael yet. Michael, what are your thoughts? And historically, um, how difficult do you think it'll be for um, this lawsuit to go through and not um, push us back in the dark ages where we're being limited on how we can vote? <laughs> Well, Florida being a former Confederate state, Florida and Georgia and Texas, they're trying to take us back to uh, before uh, 1870. And um, Florida, it's important to note that Florida was the first state to have poll taxes in this country in 1889. And then in 1890, when Mississippi had their state convention, and um, the white county judge who presided over the Mississippi State Convention said, we are here to exclude the Negro. And this was in a state that had a majority black population, the state of Mississippi. They imposed poll taxes and literacy tests. And this became known as the Mississippi Plan, which was adopted by the other former Confederate states to suppress the African-American vote, South Carolina, Louisiana, uh, Georgia, uh, North Carolina, et cetera. Uh, so what the Department of Justice here is doing excellent 
is, is excellent. Uh, this would not have happened under the Donald Trump Department of Justice. Uh, and this is in the tradition of why the Department of Justice was created in 1870 during Reconstruction. They were created largely to protect the new rights of African-Americans, uh, protect African-American elected officials who were being attacked by the Ku Klux Klan and the, and the, um, the White League and things like this, protect uh, white Republicans who many of them were allies of African-Americans, and uh, to crack down on the Ku Klux Klan and protect voting rights as well, especially after the 15th, especially after the 15th Amendment of 1870. So this is in the tradition of why the Department of Justice was created. So once again, we would not have a Merrick Garland, we would not have a Kristen Clark as, as a, a, a assistant um, of the Civil Rights Division, Assistant Attorney General of the Civil Rights Division, if African Americans did not go out and vote. And we have a lot of this to owe to uh, Black Lives Matter, Cliff Albright, Latasha Brown, uh, Stacey Abrams, and others. 16.9 million African Americans voted, uh, 49 million white people, 9.7 million uh, Latinos to put Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in the White House. So this is an example of how elections have consequences. Well, thank you all. I'm going to come back with another question. I just want to preface it with uh, the arrests that were made. So I'm going to go to that story, and then we're going to come back to you guys. Um, so right now, 20 people are set to be charged in Florida for voting illegally. Now, these will be the first arrests since the Office of Election Crimes and Security started investigating fraud. Now, Governor Ron DeSantis created the department following the 2020 election, and he says these individuals weren't allowed to vote because of previous felonies. The state of Florida uh, has charged and is in the process of arresting 20 individuals across the state for voter fraud. Now, now the majority of these people illegally voted in Palm Beach, Broward, and Miami-Dade. These folks voted illegally in this case, and there's going to be other grounds for other prosecutions in the future, uh, they are disqualified from voting uh, because they've been convicted of either murder or sexual assault, and they do not have the right to vote. Now, additional reviews and investigations are ongoing. Voter fraud is considered a third-degree felony, with each facing up to five years in prison. Now, let's go back to our panelists. What are your thoughts on uh, this new development? Well, this is to be expected from Ron DeSantis, and Florida needs to be desanitized. And this is what I uh, warned people about, uh, about Ron DeSantis when he ran against Andrew Gillum. And Andrew Gillum was correct when they had the debate. And Andrew Gillum said, I'm not calling Mr. DeSantis a racist. I'm saying the racists believe Mr. DeSantis in the race is a racist. So these are the tactics that they try. Now, if we go back a couple of years ago, we remember the effort to uh, restore the voting rights to uh, ex-felons, to returning citizens in Florida. And uh, Roland covered this a lot here on the show. It passed overwhelmingly. Uh, they needed, I think, 66 percent of the voters to, to, to pass it. It passed overwhelmingly. Then the Republican-dominated state legislature, the, the, the white supremacists, the white nationalist party, what they did was they instituted a, an additional stipulation that you had to pay all your fees and all your restitution, things like this, before you could vote, okay? So this felony disenfranchisement literally goes back to 1870, 
right around that time when the 15th Amendment, which gave African-American men the right to vote, became law. This is where we see uh, these former Confederate states start to impose laws that strip people of their right to vote if they are um, ex-offenders. So each one of these cases have to be investigated. It, in the case with Crystal Mason in Texas, she was actually given the wrong information that she could vote. So uh, Ron DeSantis, and once again, Florida needs to be desanitized. Uh, Ron DeSantis makes it seem like these people uh, intended to break the law and vote one time and risk going to jail. Okay, so you know we need to we need to deal with them at the ballot box. Right. In and, and, and that's also going to prison again, right? Because these are talking yeah. about people who are returning citizens. So you're talking about mm -hmm. reincarcerating people for doing something that they couldn't do on their own. They went through the registration process, right? So if mm -hmm. there was any kind of complication, that should have been caught by the state. And so to put the burden then on citizens to say, well, you have to know whether you're clear, when you're talking about people who've had to move through all kinds of hurdles to even get to this place. And as Michael just noted, the, the goalposts kept moving along the way. And I think we also have to think about the kinds of crimes that are singled out for exclusion forever from voting, right? I mean, the goal is to bring people into the process. But when you say, well, there are certain kinds of crimes that leave you beyond citizenship, we have to be really careful about that. And I think it's really thoughtful about that because crimes are also racialized, right? So right around the time that Michael is talking about when they were putting these voter disenfranchisement laws, they were also deciding what kind of crimes became felonies because they thought certain kinds of crimes were black crimes, right? And so we have to be really mindful that this is a part of a very long project to criminalize and to exclude black people of all stripes, because those folks, even if they are uh, formally incarcerated, are still citizens. And that's something right. we have to reckon with and have to acknowledge. And for those who think that there was a lot of voter fraud during the recent election, let's just say these 20 people that were arrested, that wouldn't have change the election results? Absolutely not. And the statistical and nothing. Just, <laughs> and, and can I just say, you know, Doc, Doc is exactly right and Michael's exactly right. And we have to be very clear. This was the purpose of DeSantis creating the so-called election police force, right? The whole purpose was, was twofold. One, to go after folks like these first 20. Because we got to keep in mind, not only do you have this situation where you have folks who aren't quite clear about what the what what the you know which crimes were included um, and what the process is, even when they, as Michael said, even when they went back and they made the process of getting your rights restored for those who have been formerly incarcerated, when they made it more difficult, um, what they also did was create up a, a situation where they're not even helping people to even know what those fines and fees are. So even if you want to pay it, oftentimes you can't get the correct information. So they are creating a situation the same way like they create long lines and then they want to prosecute you for supporting people with long lines. They have created a situation where they are making it more difficult, in fact, impossible for you to be able to pay off those fines and fees and get your rights back. And then they're sending out this new police force in order to um, capture you. You might as well just call it a, an election slave patrol. They're called, they created this force to go out and capture people and put them in the same situation that they've now done with this first 20. This is just the first batch that we're going to see of a bunch that they're going to go after. Again, people who that did not have adequate information um, for, for a process that was made unnecessarily and intentionally cumbersome. This was the plan all along. This is not a, a, a bug. This is a feature of what their intentions were. 
Now, is there a system that's set up, or should there be? What kind of system can they set up to help these individuals get those alerts, get the notifications, get the documents that they need to make sure that they're doing all those steps right? Does something like that exist? If so, can you tell us more? And if not, what do you think needs to be developed to help these individuals so something like this doesn't happen? Is, is, is that for me? Well, yeah. I mean, that exists. It exists in other states, right? What the, what it should be is that you shouldn't have to jump through those hoops, right? Mm -hmm. It should be automatic. That you once once you do your do your time, even to the extent that you even think that those rights should have been taken away at all, right? Which is which is debatable in and of itself, right? But if you're going to say that it was, then when you complete your time, then you get those rights back, and that you don't have to you don't have to jump through these hoops and do the paperwork or know exactly what a fine and fee is. That's the way that it could, that it could be and should be, uh, and that's the way that it actually exists in in, in, a, in a couple in a couple of states. They don't their their intention was never to have people actually get their voting rights back. Their their original purpose was to make it difficult to keep them in the same situation that they were in when they were first. Uh, arrested and, con and convicted of the of the felony to begin with. That's what we have to fight against. We really need to we need to get rid of the entire notion of felony disenfranchisement for all the reason that doc right. just just uh, it is rooted in slavery, right. right? And so we have got to and rooted in, in the in the uh, post reconstruction period. We have got to get rid of it altogether. Well, thank you all um, for giving us your input on that. I have to take it to a break. But for our viewers that are just now tuning in, this is Roland Martin Unfiltered on Black Star Network. We're taking it to a break, but we'll be right back. Okay, that was um, also Roland was out of town. That was uh, Therese Garnet sitting in for Roland. That was her first time sitting in for Roland Martin. That was Therese Garnet, who uh, guest hosted uh, for Roland on uh, Friday's edition Friday, August 19th, 2022 uh, edition of Roland Martin Unfiltered. Uh, check this uh, out here. We've talked about voter fraud here on the show. Uh, there's no evidence of widespread voter fraud, um, even though you have a lot of Republicans that want to push this voter fraud myth. November 11th, 2020 from businessinsider.com. Um, Americans are more likely to be struck by lightning than commit election fraud. Americans are more likely to be struck by lightning than commit election fraud. Uh, Donald Trump and his allies have filed multiple unsuccessful lawsuits and are spreading misinformation in an attempt to undermine the results of the 2020 election. Uh, so they go through and let me see here. Uh, 2020. Okay. Uh, there, there was one article dealing with, um, research from like the last 10 years, something like that. I wasn't able to find that one. Uh, 